2: Welcome to a new episode of Freedom, Books, Flowers, and the Moon—the podcast brought to you every week by the TLS. I'm Thea Linarduzzi, and with me again this week, while Stig Abel has his arms full of baby, as he recently put it, is our arts editor Lucy Dallas. Welcome back. Thank you. How are you enjoying the heatwave? Not, not really. Oh, no, northern climes. Oh no. <laughs> can't, can't really do it. I mean, well, I mean, it's true that Britain has—I've never seen it looking quite so. Dry and Parched. golden and crispy.
3: Whereas you're loving it because you can, I, you I'm can in handle
2: my, it. I'm in my element. That's yeah. good. Okay. Um, banish that image from your minds for the duration of this podcast, though, please. As on the show this week, we are about to immerse ourselves in the wild and windy Yorkshire moors. To mark 200 years since Emily Bronte's birth on July 30th, 1818, we're looking back on her life and her most famous work, Wuthering Heights, with a nod or full leotarded lunge to Kate Bush's memorable track, whose anniversary we are also celebrating in this week's issue. We'll end on the story, equally wild, albeit in a completely different way, of Tommy Nutter, the rebel tailor of 1960s Savile Row, who from restrictive working-class origins above a cafe in Edgeware pulled himself up by the force of his playfully contrary imagination. When Emily Bronte died in 1848 at the age of 30, she left behind just one novel, Wuthering Heights, published the year before. Not that anyone but Emily and her family knew it at the time, because a book had appeared under the pseudonym Ellis Bell. A second edition, revised by the more cautious and commercially minded pen of her sister Charlotte, appeared in 1850. Wuthering Heights' tale of raw and all-consuming love and hatred centred on Catherine and Heathcliff needs no recap here. It caused a scandal when it first appeared. The graphic violence, immoral behaviours and general grimness of it all was simply too much for mid-Victorian manners. We know nothing in the range of our fictitious literature which presents such shocking pictures of the worst forms of humanity. There is not a single character which is not utterly hateful or thoroughly contemptible, said one reviewer. Here, all the faults of Jane Eyre, by Charlotte Bronte, are magnified a thousandfold, and the only consolation which we have in reflecting upon it is that it will never be generally read, said another. He could not, of course, have been more wrong. Today, the genius of Emily Bronte is undisputed. In the 1980s, John Sutherland could describe Wuthering Heights as the 20th century's favourite 19th century novel – And I wouldn't be surprised if the same held for the 21st century readers, helped along by the novel's rich afterlife on screen, page, and in the pop charts. Yes, we shall come to that song very soon. We've marked the 200th here at the TLS with an array of pieces taking us from the novel itself through striking, or as in Blake Morrison's case, failed adaptations, blame Cliff Richard, as well as recent criticism, commemorations, and other creative flights. Thus, we bring you in the studio today the TLS's Robert Potts, who has just reread the novel and has listened to Kate Bush's track. Oh, how many times, Robert? Dozens and dozens. <laughs> Welcome, Robert.
4: Hello.
2: Um, and we're also joined by Jacqueline Banerjee, who has reviewed a clutch of recent criticism covering various angles of Emily Brontë's life and work, and taking us beyond Wuthering Heights. Jacqueline, hello. Hello, hello. Um, have you, have you, Jacqueline, have you um reread the novel yourself recently? Not recently, no, I have to admit. Well, I know you have, Robert, so perhaps let's start with you. Has your Has your appreciation of the novel changed through consecutive rereadings? Uh,
4: it would be hard to say that because the, the first time I read it was um, quite a long time ago when I was about 19 or 20 years old and I must have done it uh, as part of um, studying it. And to come to it completely fresh, I remembered almost nothing about it. <laughs> I was really, really taken by it. I was, I was tremendously impressed. I enjoyed it immensely. I think the style is interesting and these structures very very strange all of its strangenesses really pleased me there was nothing very predictable about it um, and I, I think there's also quite a lot of wit in it as well as these staggering amounts of unpleasantness and violence uh, all of it was was really unexpected to me and I, I enjoyed that immensely
2: I I reread it relatively recently probably probably a few years ago though um, and I remember being much more struck by the force of Heathcliff in in and his characterization in the second part versus the first part. I think when I re when I read it the first time, I like you, I was a teenager, probably a bit younger than nineteen, and I was you know probably swept away by the romance of the first part.
4: Yes, whereas the second half makes incredibly grim and protracted uh, reading, mm, doesn't it? It's
3: Not much fun. The second it's half. Not. is it really. Not that the first half is fun <laughs> as such. Yeah, it's more. It's much more romantic and. Um
4: you find yourself having to balance, and you do, simultaneously, the um, your, your sense of the woundedness of Heathcliff, the, the terrible, terrible childhood, and the great unfairness of what's done to him, with the eventually unsustainable... Revenge that he takes at great length in the second half, and it's so unpleasant, and his behaviour so unreasonable that you, you can't bear it. But at the same time, you, you're still aware of that little boy wounded from the the first half.
1: Mm. I think you have a lot of sympathy for him in the first half. It's built up. Um, you you do feel that he has um, every right to feel that he needs to revenge, take revenge on somebody for it, um, Hindley notably. Um, so you do you do sympathise with him, and I. I felt to looking forward to Michael Stewart's um, shall I call it midquill <laughs> when he um, shows Heathcliff in the intervening time you know when he disappears from the novel and then comes back as a fine gentleman with, with a lot of money I don't know about fine gentleman but, a, but a, um, a gentleman nonetheless if you put in what happens in the meanwhile you will lose sympathy for him again whereas if you don't put it in. Um, there's a sense of mystery, and that sense of mystery, I think, helps to uh, somewhat soften what happens later on. So you, you see the, ch- the child who's abused, the man who has gone through we don't know what kind of experience, and then the man who erupts as he does in the second
2: part. And it's it's Michael Stewart who whose spin-off novel you were just mentioning there, who he, he's the one who puts who, he poses the question, it's not an especially new question. Um, are we meant to like these characters? Is that is that an interesting avenue of, of a way to explore this work, do you think?
1: It is, but I don't know if liking is the right word. I think we feel very very much drawn to Cathy and and also to Heathcliff as a boy as he suffers. And uh, I, for one, i <laughs> I still think that Nellie Dean is meant to be uh, a solid, uh, not perhaps entirely credible narrator, but but I still I can still take to her. So I, I didn't feel that everybody should be dismissed. Zilla as well. I mean, they're not they're not uh, all hateful creatures. I, I didn't feel they were all entirely shocking because I think if you felt like that, you wouldn't the novel wouldn't be so um, attractive. But is
2: is one of the arguments not that it's so compelling because Bronte's aim was to face us with our own kind of unlikability? perhaps not the right word, but our kind of our own most... Yes,
1: but if it was all totally negative, then I don't think we would read it. Of course, they've got the nature, nature, uh, the moors. If it was all dark... What do you think? If it was all dark, would you? Would you? No, I agree. I think.
3: Yeah. I think there has to be something that draws you in, and and mm. what what does draw you in in the first half is so, it's so strange mm. and it's so
2: compelling, and I still think it's very difficult to say why. Mm. Really, I think in fact that was one of the the criticisms of um, Andrea Arnold's film of Wuthering Heights a few years ago mm. was that it was sort of it was too dark, it was too grim, yeah, mm. and there was none of the the, the Oh, there was there was an aesthetic beauty, of course, in her filmmaking, but there wasn't enough of the other that we. I thought the first part
1: was wonderful. I I enjoyed it very much. The Heathcliff as a a sort of lurking in the shadows, always Mm. watching. I thought that was very well done. Except rather difficult to watch because it's so dark. Mm. (laughs) But I wasn't so convinced by the second part where they they had an older Heathcliff and Cathy. Uh, I think that was fairly general opinion that they weren't very well matched.
2: Yeah. Well, and um, talking then of darkness, as is pretty much always the case. <laughs> the um the the novel is read as a, a key to the author herself. So part of what's so attractive about Emily Bronte's character is how little we know about it, how li- how how much mm. remains in the dark so to speak. The same word um that is often used to describe her novel, strange, seems to seems often to uh to become fixed to her.
1: Yes, Diana Birch still says it's still strange, it's still baffling, and of course it's true. Um, But there are many ways in which it wasn't as dark as it's made out to be. Uh, It was by Mrs Gaskell, for instance, Um, because you see from um, later work, from about Juliet Barker onwards, that the childhood was much happier than it was thought to be, and of course, much richer in resources, in cultural resources, than we've thought. You know, her father went, went to St John's, Cambridge, and had a wonderful library, and was interested in, loved music. Mm. Um, they had a lot of facilities there that we don't necessarily expect them to have had. And her childhood was not as miserable as it has been thought
2: to have been. And a couple of the books that you review for us this week... They sort of focus on on the life. What what new inflections do we get here? That the disagreement over what kind of person Emily was continues. But perhaps you could start us off with um, Claire O'Callaghan's book, *Emily Bronte Reappraised*. What do we
1: yes. get there? Yes, it's, it's very difficult, but I think um, Clare O'Callaghan has made her out as relevant for the modern age by um, painting her as well a lover of nature that is uh, that is something very appealing to us of course with our environmental concerns that's fine but as a gutsy proto-feminist i don't know but i think part of that is so that we uh, don't give precedence to um, jane eyre which is much loved by um, feminists as a proto-feminist novel i don't see Emily Bronte herself as I see her as gutsy because I think it took a lot of courage to do some of the things that she did and she wasn't by nature suited to, like going to Brussels for example um, with her sister it was difficult for her and she did it and she stayed as long as she had to
2: And how about Nick Holland because he takes perhaps a more interesting route into who Emily Bronte was, he views her life through the prism of her poetry, how, how does that work?
1: I think that works very well, actually. I like his work. Uh, he has a more—he's soaked in Brontëana, really, Brontian, in the sense of Bronte history, you know, family history. Uh, he knows all about the different members of the family. He brings them all in, and at first I thought it a little disconcerting when there's a, you know, a long piece about Aunt Branwell and so on. But in the end, it builds up a very nice picture, and uh, he relates the poems to it very well. Um, one I picked out about uh, well no coward so is mine those those poems um, allow him to talk about her religion her, the possibility that she was a a, a mystic or or um, not a mystic in the strange sense but in in the sense of having um, some inspirations which he felt came, came from within not visitations from outside but but uh, inspiration from within so he uses the poems very well I
3: think There was a couple of poems she wrote when she was working in a school in Halifax yes. uh, and she was kind of longing to get up, oh, out yes. of there, which I could um, identify with a little bit because I was <laughs> brought up in Halifax Oh were you? <laughs> yes. Though I, wasn't, I wasn't always longing to get out of there but it, I found it, but actually they're very moving because she's not far away, she's, in, she's teaching in Halifax mm. and she's incredibly homesick mm. for Haworth which now is you know twenty minutes away across the okay. top of the moor. It's not far. Yeah, yeah, it's really. I mean, it's not far at all. Oh. And actually, I know. I know the bit where 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 the school was. That's also up very high, um. and it's and it's nearly up on the moors. And um, I mean, it's reasonably similar kind of terrain. It's rather kind of dark, mm. and it's quite. Wuthering, to be honest. But, I mean, I just, you know, for want of a better word. Um, but I thought that was very moving. She, she wasn't just kind of generally in love with nature. It was her path, yeah. her heart. Yeah. And as yeah. you say, that the 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 life in the vicarage is often portrayed as kind of awful and they were mm. all cramped and everybody just sort of died one after another which mm-hmm. is true but as you say it was very rich it must have been very rich because they were constantly writing things yeah and yes. lots of music as yes. you say there's another book um where you talk about how much music there was yes. and actually they were very cultured lively creative yes. family i mean
1: it's amazing to I, I was surprised to know that there was a howard philharmonic society you know <laughs>
3: Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. well, there's a very strong musical tradition around there, and a lot of it is from brass bands, and, yes, and also from, I, I know from about the Methodist brass bands, Church. But, yeah. but
1: there was much more than that. Mm.
2: I think there's a natural segue here to the role of music in Emily Bronte's own writing. So let's let's unleash the moment we've all been waiting for, please. Oh yes, please. <laughs> Robert, the floor is yours first off. How, how did this come about?
4: Well, Bush had been writing a number of songs in her teens and uh, this one was inspired not by her reading of the book in the first instance, but by her accidentally snatching ten minutes of uh, the repeat of a 1960s TV miniseries, uh, but it was enough to send her to the book and Kate Bush realised that she was born on the same day as Emily Brontë, <coughs> and that she had been known as Kathy throughout her own childhood. And as she said later, when Emily Bronte wrote the book, she was in the terminal stages of consumption, and I had a bad cold when I wrote the song.
1: Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad fair. it was only that. <laughs> uh,
4: so, so there's something destined about it. She, I think it's very lucky the music company wanted her to debut with uh, James and the Cold Gun, which is kind of honky-tonk kind of thing about a Western cowboys mm. sort of song. Mm, mm-hmm. uh, very jolly, but it, it doesn't really capture the, the essence of Bush. Yep. And she said no, Wuthering Heights, she really pressed for it. And then the second piece of good luck was she didn't like the Uh, the art on the the, the photograph on the single cover Uh, so the release was delayed until the beginning of 1978 Mm -hmm. meaning that she didn't have to go head to head with Mull of Kintyre. Oh, you don't want
3: to go oh. head to head with Mull of Kintyre. And That's giving two, us a, two versions of nature. Giving uh, us a
2: double anniversary as double well. Double anniversary, yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that would have been 160 years after Emily Bronte's. Yes, birth. and Bush herself
4: uh, 140, so it's all very, very neat. <laughs> <laughs>
2: the whole thing is very beautiful. Um, so,
4: yes, that was the, that was the inspiration.
2: Um, as, as a debut single, I mean, it, the strangeness of it seems particularly fitting that i think her, her vocals you, you say were compared to um the wailing of a pregnant cat
4: a uh, newly neutered a cat.
2: newly neutered very cat. Very i mean i wonder whether hanging poppy would have been yeah. Yeah. Wasn't that you i just say,
4: say. Yeah. it wasn't
2: you that said that wasn't
4: no. that said that i
1: at think, first, I, think I was about <laughs> 10 years old
4: <laughs> at the time so yeah.
1: you get over that you get over the strangeness of it though don't you and you watch it; it's beautiful.
4: It's absolutely perfect for mm. everything. Seems to come together. The, yeah. the dancing, the
1: yeah, see that quality. I, that's what I'm saying about Wuthering Heights. It's, there is beauty in it as well, mm. and intensity and beauty, and not just the cruelty that seems to be picked out a lot. I, am I right that there's a sort of resurgence of interest in horror at the moment? Um, yes, yes I yeah, think there's a kind right. of creative
3: yes. reworking of it Yeah.
1: It yeah. depends on your character I suppose but I, or your personality <laughs> I like to see the other things as well I, I particularly feel that the book is beautifully constructed mm-hmm. uh, beautifully balanced and if you take if you take out the years when Heathcliff's away and build them into another story in the middle it upsets
4: that balance I completely if, agree with that
1: Oh good <laughs> I, thought, I, 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 th- I think I, you're I, right I... to
4: make that point that the, the absence is is crucial, and the other thing is it, the, it ends a very on a very redemptive note, um, not not a sort of crassly romantic one, but he almost Heathcliff is almost exhausted by the end. He can no longer keep taking this extended revenge against mm. people who mm. were only sort of related, really, to, to his, his, his proper target. Um, and he's looking at them, and he keeps on seeing the face of his lover in in them. Um, but he's also just, he's, he's wrung out, and they are able to reunite over books. I think there's a really crucial uh, role, just as there must have been for Emily and her sisters mm. in their childhood, mm. to books throughout. You, you start off with um, an anecdote um, in Cathy's diary about them, both her and Heathcliff throwing Joseph's religious books into the dog kennel, yes, yes. Uh, vowing, I hate a good book and the good book really really cops it throughout Wuthering Heights whereas other books are absolutely crucial and it's the fact that Heathcliff is taken away from education yep yeah really barred, really cruelly barred, barred
3: for him and doesn't isn't doesn't young Cathy at the end isn't she teaching that's exactly it. to read she, she's
4: mocked him she's revolved him that there yep. comes a point where he has taken the books away to try to learn himself and she mm. laughs at him and he returns them to her and um one of them ends up throwing the books into the fire and yep. they both look a little bit miffed about. And There's a lot of petulance throughout the whole novel. People do things petulantly and they cut off their own noses despite their faces. Mm. They're willing to do that. It's, it's all scorched earth. But in this case, they burn the books and... A little while later, um, that idiot narrator Lockwood, he comes back and he says, what, haven't you even got any books? And she goes, no, I don't have anything to, to read. But eventually, by the end, she is teaching him and they come together. And mm. it's absolutely beautiful. Books are seen as redemptive in
1: Wuthering Heights. Yes, Hunts. absolutely. Oh, you need that, don't you? You, you say that Heathcliff's rung out.
2: He, his revenge
1: is rung out, but not his love. No.
2: Yes. And I suppose on, on, a, on a final note, um, we, we're seeing again, there's, there's this... Um, and to bring it Kate, back to Kate Bush again, I can't help myself. <laughs> yeah. um, we we learn in this week's paper um, that she's laid one of the, one of a series of stones, and these yeah. stones have been engraved by other writers. So that again, it's this coming together over mm. over these books. So Jackie Cage, Jeanette Winterson, and Carol Ann mm. Duffy mm. Um, have engraved these these stones that lead from across the moors from the village of Thornton where, where I think all of the Brontes were born to the parsonage at Haworth, where I think most of them died. Um, in fact, Michael Stewart, who, who we mentioned before, he initiated yeah, the project and he's written project. about it for us. Uh, so I uh, suppose on on a final note, who uh, will any of us be making this pilgrimage? I suppose for, for you, Lucy, it's more of a homecoming. <laughs> not really. I mean, it's not exactly my
3: stomping ground, but Haworth is really lovely, actually. It's really beautiful. And I think it is important. I would like to do it, actually, because the thing that is still there there there's so much as we're talking about there's so much generated by the brontes and now about the brontes but the thing that really is still there at the risk of sounding a bit corny Mm. is the moor and Mm. it's the same or i should say the (laughs) (laughs) moor, and and they are the same and they're quite they're not pretty you know that it's quite it's freezing it's very windy but they are really beautiful and it's not only desolate Mm. it's it's all sorts of things and they are they are
1: amazing spaces I'm working on my husband so <laughs> that we can come up <laughs> see, and see it. we see We've we can been get years there. ago but it's so completely changed. But as you say,
2: not the moors.
1: That's what Lucy was saying. Not the moors. Yeah.
2: That'll be beautiful. Indeed. And we will have to leave it there. Thank you very much, Robert Potts. Thank you. And thank you very much, Jacqueline Banerjee. Thank you.
0: This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care.
3: Now, from Wuthering Heights to rugged couture, do you know what the Savile Row magic trick is? Or what R B F S and even SLABC mean? If you're used to getting bespoke suits from Savile Row, then you might. But for the rest of us, Mika Ross Southall is here to shed some light and to talk about the fascinating story of Tommy Nutter, the rebel tailor of Savile Row, as he's called in a new biography by Lance Richardson. Mika, welcome. Many thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Um, Can you put everyone out of their misery, please, and explain what the Savile Row Magic Trick is and also what all those acronyms mean?
5: Well, essentially the Savile Row Magic Trick is a tailor being able to create a suit for you that enhances your body into a kind of heightened fantasy of itself. So actually, the Dictionary of English Trades in 1804 explained it as a master tailor being able to not only cut for the handsome and well-shaped, but bestow a good shape where nature has not granted it. Ah. So if we go back to those abbreviations that you mentioned, Mm. they would be written down by a cutter, as well as a client's measurements, to record the cutter's interpretation of a client's. Figure or figuration. So, Rb as you mentioned means rounded back. FS means flat seat, i.e. no backside. Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> not, nothing to hang the trousers on. Essentially, is what essentially, we're saying. Yeah. yeah. And actually, my favourite SLABC means stands like a broken down cab horse.
3: Is that <laughs> really? And is that really? That's not just Tommy Nutt. That's, that's not a, just th- Tommy Savile Row expression.
5: Yeah, it's codes that they would use deliberately covert because mm. obviously they would offend clients yeah. if they could <laughs> <Yes>. understand <laughs> what was standard, going on I think they. think they would. But it was a way of them being able to make the best possible fitting suit for individual clients. Sounds nice.
3: brilliant I could do with the Savile yeah. Row. Yeah let's all get ourselves no, down then. <laughs> not,
5: not, really, uh, not really in that um,
3: area um, but to go back to the beginning how did Tommy Notter get to Savile Row in the first place and what, what did he kind of do to it when he got there?
5: Well, it was a difficult and slightly protracted journey for him because he came from a tough working-class background. His father was very traditional, patriarchal. He actually managed the cafe that the family lived above on Edgeware Road. And he sent Tommy to Wilsdon Technical College when he was 13 to study bricklaying and plumbing, which were... (laughs) Butch things, as Mm. Tommy himself called them, that he just wasn't interested in. He loved watching Hollywood musicals, painting his room in bright colours, sunbathing. So this three-year technical college education was not what he wanted. After that, he wanted to go to art school. But again, his father put his foot down and sent him off to train as a clerical assistant at the Ministry of Works. And he was there for a year, but was very bored. He basically was making tea for everyone. Mm. And he saw an advert in the Evening Standard newspaper for a job as an errand boy at a tailor's on Savile Row called G. Ward & Co. So he got the job and he went to work there for nine years because it was a long apprenticeship. Mm -hmm. And then he set up a shop on his own, on Savile Row, and it was totally different from all the rest of the shops on Savile Row. He not only innovated the design of suits, but he innovated the way the shops looked. So his shop, which was um, basically had an ostentatious window display of ostrich feathers and Mm. Egyptian murals to attract attention and appeal to a wider audience, whereas other shops on the street had frosted glass or no windows at all and they would be demarcated by a bronze nameplate to sort of uphold this elitist and snobbish, mm. hush hush Because you kind of
3: knew you knew what it was, they didn't have to advertise because if you were a gentleman you, were in you the know. knew the deal and exactly. you, you know that I go to X for my suits, whereas Tommy Notter was going look at this fabulous he stuff wanted,
5: He wanted to appeal to a whole demographic of people that probably didn't know what Savile Row tailoring was,
2: mm. and and the context for this was ripe, of course, because he he opened his shop in 1969. Yeah, right. So and and this was right next door to to Soho, where everything was changing. Mm, exactly, there was a whole
5: flourishing gay scene in Soho that Tommy was actually very much a part of. So before he set up his shop, he had this kind of split in personality where he was working under these very prosaic traditional tailors but he himself in his out of office life was clubbing and rubbing shoulders with famous artists famous film stars and he basically grew frustrated with the traditionalism of Savile Row which was why he decided to set up the shop in the first place mm-hmm. um, Just going back to his working class origins th- this is a, a kind of
3: pet theory of mine and I know almost nothing about it so please do say it's <laughs> absolute rubbish but I wondered if there's a bit of a tradition from a working class tr- tradition becoming tailors and designers because there are people, I'm trying to think, there was Tommy Notter, there was Bruce Oldfield, who was quite a while ago, but he famously grew up in a children's home, Bernardo's, and then sort of dressed royalty. And there was Alexander McQueen, and, and you know, you couldn't read about Alexander McQueen without someone telling you all about his background. And they would then move into these very, very wealthy and privileged circles. Is, is, is there a tradition of it, or do we hear about them because they're the exception, do you think?
5: I think there is a tradition, because tailoring was originally a trade job and so it would be very normal for people to come from working class backgrounds and in Mm -hmm. fact Tommy's business partner who was a very talented cutter called Edward Sexton came also from a working class background he grew up in Elephant and Castle and if you actually look on the websites of Savile Row Taylor's shops today they advertise sometimes for apprentices and they encourage them to apply when they're sixteen they? or eighteen because it's such a huge undertaking to learn all these techniques. And Lance Richardson actually actually says in the book that he kind of compares it to brain surgery. I mean that's a little <laughs> far-fetched in my opinion, a but a little bit. It's that same principle really. And there are also lots of fashion designers like Paul Smith, Vivian Westwood and John Galliano who come from working class backgrounds.
2: Mm. And in fact John Galliano trained with Tommy Nutter didn't he? Well
5: he did a work experience placement in the 80s at the Nutter's shop and he, one of the things that he took away from that was that he saw the sleeves of jackets hanging in a gentle arc on the hanging rails rather than straight down which is the usual way because they're cut straight and he went on to experiment with this and he came up with his spiral cutting technique which was one of his signature looks. Mm-hmm. So you can sort of trace a line directly? A spiral
3: line? A, a spiral line. line? A
2: loopy <laughs> line. Can I, um, can I interrupt for a second? Just to se- Because you, you start your piece, um, Mika... Uh, by acknowledging that Tommy Nutter's first suit was bought from Burton's for £8 in 1959. And so, <laughs> bear with me, there's a tenuous link between our first segment on the podcast this week um, about Emily Bronte uh, and this second segment mm-hmm. via my grandfather-in-law made that would have made that suit that Tommy Nutter bought because he owned and ran the wool mill, which was situated just a few miles from the Bronte parsonage, oh, yeah,
3: cause um, it was mills. and he
2: supplied all of Burton's suits <laughs> to him. So he so they felt the honour-bound to point that out, so he would have made that boxy jacket made of brown worsted with a tapered trouser.
5: Ooh. Wow, and he, there you go. <laughs> he influenced and inspired Tommy Nutter exactly. from then on because so that was a suit. He, well, the feeling he got from wearing that suit was what actually made him realise
2: how much he loved clothes. Mm-hmm. And how they could change the way that you projected yourself, the way you felt about yourself yeah. and who you could be. Mm. Well, thank you to your grandfather. <laughs> I had to point that out. I'm yeah, sorry. No, don't, don't be sorry. If it's we're all, going so. in for family
5: anecdotes, <laughs> I've yes, also let's, got another go one, one. we are. We've got an hour and a half. Stay with <laughs> us. Actually, my dad has a Tommy Nutter suit <laughs> Does that he? he still has, and it's beautifully made. It's a navy blue linen, and he bought it in the Tommy Nutter shop in the 80s. And is wow. it? does he still wear it? It. Well, I mean, Are you trying to say de- no. <laughs> <laughs> Not really. It, it still fits him, but it's of a time. Yeah. Definitely of a time. Has it got enormous pads? lapels? Big lapels, great big shoulder pads. That was part of his style, if, though, wasn't it? I mean, it well? I know that. Fashion's always a cycle, mm. but I'm not sure that that has quite come back yet. But that's not quite. Back <laughs> in there.
3: But that was one of his things. Wasn't it? I was going to ask you later, actually, what was his style, and wasn't that what one of his things? Great big lapels and big shoulders and a kind of tapering waist. Was that that was one of his signature kind of silhouettes? Is that right?
5: Absolutely. That came mostly in the '80s, but before that, he updated classic British suit templates in a way to modernise them. So His signature look was huge lapels which were sometimes so wide that they would brush the shoulders and tight-fitting trousers which had enough flexibility so that you could dance because he was making these suits in a way that he wanted to wear them mm-hmm. and he loved dancing for the people in soho <laughs> exactly in and
3: fact, yeah i was gonna say it was it was it's all very kind of swinging 60s and 70s and it's very grooving he was backed by peter brown who worked with brian epstein and also by Silla black and who there's a brilliant list of the people he dressed
5: he dressed everyone who was anyone really i mean he created mick jaggers O'Donnell three-piece suit for his wedding to Be- Bianca Jagger in the 70s and actually created quite a few suits for Bianca Jagger herself mm-hmm. he also styled Elton John the Beatles for their famous Abbey Road album cover um, yes I read about that, three out of four three, out of them, so okay. John, Paul and Ringo all coincidentally mm. turned up to shoot this album cover wearing Tommy Nutter's suits and they, they didn't plan that
3: they just Those are the suits they had, whereas George... George was, wasn't interested. George is wearing, I was talking about this with another editor at work, George is wearing double <laughs> denim, in fact. It's oh, difficult look classic. to pull off, but George, George he does. does it. He does. Of course he does. does. Yeah, yeah. he does. <laughs> it does.
5: And there are lots of artists like David Hockney and mm. Twiggy. Um, and he actually also created the Joker costumes for Jack Nicholson in the Tim oh, no Burton Batman films I mean, in the yes, 80s. I heard yeah. about well, that. Because
3: he said that nobody else could do the frock Coats, is that right? That exactly. They weren't able to do it, they just didn't have the kind of technique
5: yeah, whereas that did. was Tommy's trade and also the wide shoulders Yeah, and mm-hmm. so
2: his, his, his designs went far and wide but he, he drew his inspiration from equally as wide a source or an array of sources, didn't he? Because you mention uh, Jaws, the Falklands War I mean these are quite unlikely things for, I would have thought, for a tailor to draw inspiration from. Absolutely, I think he just had a lot
5: of fun <laughs> yeah. Sounds like it. And and sort of pushed what he could get away with. I think that he was this charismatic, beautiful, statuesque figure that people wanted to spend time with, wanted to emulate. And so he created these designs under his label and his brand. He, he effectively created a brand that people wanted to buy. Mm-hmm. And it's obviously, as you say, still
3: still going strong. Or some of the some of the suits are still going strong in your dad's wardrobe. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm afraid we're going to have to leave it there. But I did want to say because uh, your piece, and in fact the book you reviewed, end on what you call an endearing revelation, which it, it very much is. Um, when Tommy Nutter told an interview what it was that made him happiest, can you um, tell us what that is?
5: Yeah, it's a very funny and unexpected moment coming from this man who's a seeming extrovert in that he says that what makes him happiest is not working or socialising but watching Coronation Street and he quotes John Betjeman who said it's a half hour of sheer bliss.
3: (laughs) There you go It's the TLS podcast brought to you by (laughs) Coronation Street. (laughs) Thank you very much, Mika.
2: Thank you for having me. <laughs> we will have to leave it there for this week. Our thanks go to Mika Ross-Southhall, Jacqueline Banerjee and Robert Potts for joining us. Take a look at the rest of this week's paper on the website, the-tls.co.uk, or pick up a copy in the shops. Also in this week's issue, you'll find Joe Moran on the problem with employment that is insufficiently rewarding, a look into the world of free climbing, Judith Flanders on the empathetic myth-making of the photographer Dorothea Lang. Michiko Kakutani on issues with truth in modern America and much more next week Stig will be back in the studio Lucy and I will be away and this great game of musical chairs will continue for now though from Lucy and from me goodbye